This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works or others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring my podcast. Last week, I posted my first Patreon-only episode, my June reading wrap-up. And this week, my first monthly Patreon bookstagram interview will go live. This month, I speak with Barrett of Barrett Talks Books and Deb of DG Reads. You can check out the benefits I am offering through the link in the show notes. I hope you will consider becoming a page-turner. Today, I am interviewing Vanessa Riley about Island Queen. In addition to being a novelist, Vanessa holds a doctorate in mechanical engineering and a master's in industrial engineering and engineering management from Stanford University. She also earned a BS and an MS in mechanical engineering from Penn State University. She currently juggles mothering a teen, cooking for her military man husband, and speaking at women's and STEM events. Vanessa lives in Atlanta. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Welcome, Vanessa. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. How are you? I am doing very fine as well, and I'm really looking forward to speaking about Island Queen. Well, before we start with that, I actually have a quick question for you. So recently on social media, you reenacted, I think it was like a curling iron post or something like that. <laughs> it was absolutely hysterical. So can you just tell me a little bit more about that? And then we'll talk about Island Queen. Yes. Uh, one of uh, the editors at one of my publishing houses saw that I had new bangs. You know, there's a point in your life where you, you go through the bang phase. I am in the bang phase again. Um, and she was like, you have to do this thing I saw on TikTok with the 70s bang. I was like, okay, please translate that for me. What are you talking about? And she posted this video of this young lady who's gorgeous, gorgeous, long, thick hair, who can uh, basically curl everything backwards and then shake it. And then it comes out looking like a, a lion's mane, but like elegant. It's like, it's beautiful. So I was like, I'm game, right? But my hair doesn't quite work like that. So I <laughs> uh, gave myself a headache, shaking as much as I possibly could. Uh, but in the end, it takes like a, another 15 minutes after the video, it does settle down and look nice. Well, I was laughing because my kids are always telling me there's always something or another that they're talking about and I missed it. So I was like, I don't know if this is a challenge or a trend or what is happening, but I enjoyed watching your posts. They were pretty funny. Very good. Well, now we can talk about Island Queen. So for those that haven't read it, would you just give me a quick summary? Yes. Island Queen is about a woman, Dorothy Kerwin Thomas, who begins her life on the island of Maserat. She's enslaved, but she's able to save money and buy her freedom and the freedom of her family. And then she goes on this great adventure of building businesses throughout the West Indies and literally becomes one of the wealthiest women in the West Indies. That in itself 
giving where she came from would be an exciting story, but that's only a piece of her story. She is a champion for women's rights. And there's a point in her life where everything that she's built is at stake. And she has to decide whether she is going to stand her ground or do everything she possibly can to make things right, including going to England from, at this point, she's living in Demerara, which is present-day Guyana, which is below the equator. So you have to get on a boat and go all the way up to England because England, Britain is ruling all of these colonies or many of these colonies in the West Indies and to appeal. So as a foreigner, she would have to do this. But Dorothy's a special woman. She's not unknown in England at this point in her life. She's had some rather scandalous affairs, one with a future king of England. So she's not unknown. She is the right choice in that moment in time to do something that's going to have an impacting legacy for Black women and women of color in the colony of Demerara. So it's a fascinating, I think it's a fascinating read. I'm very excited to let you meet her. She's not a superwoman. She's a very human woman. You're going to see her human experience, but she rose to the moment in history. And that's Island Queen. So I thought it was an absolutely fascinating story from the politics of these islands, some of them as colonies and shifting allegiances and who's ruling the colony, wanting to be free, all of that to Dorothy's story herself. And that it's in the 17, late 1700s. I mean, that was just amazing to me. One of the things I, 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 want, I hope this narrative helps uncover is that each one of these islands is different. So you can't go to Dominica and think that it's the same as Granada, that's the same as, as Arat. Every one of these islands, every one of these colonies, Jamaica, Barbados, they're all different and they all have different rules that apply to them. And because sometimes they've, they've had different colonizers, sometimes it was, the, it was British, sometimes it was Spanish, sometimes it was Dutch, sometimes it's French, that also impacts how things develop and that the politics of the situation. And I wanted you to see how this woman is able to navigate. She, she is disadvantaged in, in every aspect of the world. She starts out as an enslaved woman, but she's able to figure out the landscape very quickly. I think she was a very astute woman, empathic. She understood who she was and she had big goals and she did what she needed to do to get to these big goals. But the politics of, the, of, of each one of these colonies is, is, is just so different. There is uh, Catholicism influences when the French were at one point ruling. Then you go to the Church of England and there's animosity there. I mean, we, you literally have colony uh, members that change their religion just so that they can stay in power. So it's, it's a fascinating time frame. It really is. And like you said, each island is so different. So then just trying to keep up with what was happening on each particular island was, I thought, very interesting. But at times I had to be like, okay, exactly where are we right now and what's happening there? So, you know, it's interesting. And I thought you portrayed that very well. Thank you. Thank you. How did you discover Dorothy Corwin Thomas? And how did you become interested enough in her to write about her? I've always had an interest in Western civilization history. Um, and then I, in about 20, 2008, I started wanting to write professionally, and I was always gravitating towards history. Started out in historical romance, and as I'm telling stories from my vantage point of my West Indian ancestors, there's a lot of static, a lot of resistance. 
So you almost feel like you're always trying to prove that we exist. Were there black people in England during this time frame? Or did we just, you know, we were kings and queens in Africa, and then we went up in a spaceship, and then we were dropped back into 1865 <laughs> America, and only America, because that's only where Black people are. No, history is so diverse. And so I went on this quest, you know, as, you, as I progressed my career, okay, so people are like, okay, we'll accept that there are Black people in England, but you know, they had to either be slaves or servants. So I was always on this quest to find my Dorothy. And I stumble upon this cartoon sketch of Prince William Henry, and it's circa 1788, and he's in bed with this Black woman. The cartoonist who drew this, his name is Gilroy, he's, he's an ist. He's a satirist. He's a misogynist. Uh, you, you know, just label him everything you want. And because he's constantly mocking everything, there's nothing sacrosanct for him. So he... In this picture, normally when he drew black women or women in general, he would make them part of the joke. So they're garish or they, they're made to look ugly, bulbous lips, everything you could imagine to deride a person. This is what Gilroy would do. But in this particular cartoon, the woman is drawn beautifully. This black woman is drawn beautifully and she's lovingly being caressed by Prince William Henry. So this was not to make fun of her. It was more so to tell everyone what the prince was up to and the depths of that relationship. And so I had to find this woman in this picture. And by tracing his life, Prince William Henry is very well documented because he is the future King William IV. Tracing him, he's the sailor king. He spent a lot of time in the West Indies. And when he gets to the island of Dominica, he meets a mulatto woman, Dorothy Kerwin, and the rest is kind of history. But hidden history, and it was exciting to find her and, and just literally tracing her life and showing she defies so many stereotypes of what women, women of color, Black women were able to achieve. I agree with that completely. And I was amazed because it just seems when you kind of trace the history, I don't know, slavery or Black people that in the late 1700s that he did portray her the way she did. She looks beautiful. I was glad you have that cartoon in the book. And that that wasn't something that more people know about. And that I guess it was okay and accepted, which just seems a little bit different than what you think about for the late 1700s. Yes. We have glorious views of 1700s is uh, American Revolution. Then we have the French Revolution. So we have this picture of very progressive politics and, and people marching towards freedom. But then you still have this landscape of enslavement. You still have active transport from Africa to the West Indies and then to various parts of the world because they this this need of this labor source to get sugar or coffee or you know indigo and all these different types of things. So it's a, it's a great dichotomy and to find this woman and then to find out she's not the only one is just a it's just wonderful. I agree. I thought it was wonderful. And that he had relationships with a number of women of color. Yes. He was he was a he was a fun man. Uh, <laughs> he was a player. <laughs> he was a player. I mean, so you know, everyone gets mad at Prince Harry, but he wasn't the first. And his travels uh, at that point in time, I think, make him very enlightened that people are people, and that uh, love and fun and and attraction is universal. And so he found you know inspiring women like Cuba, the healer. That actually, he was actually very ill at that time frame, and she's one of the one of the ones who nursed him back to health. He kicked it up in Jamaica so much so that he uh, he and his his crew 
literally had to pay for damages to uh, one of the um, entertainments that wasn't, I'm not sure if it was a brothel or a bar, but he and his friends, they just completely wreck it. And uh, he's honor bound and he pays for it. So his history of having fun while he's in command of a frigate in the West Indies is legendary. There's rumored to be uh, children of his activities, et cetera, et cetera. So he's a fascinating individual. And it's not until he goes back to England and gets back ensconced into the politics and the society that his very progressive, very liberal views change. Well, I thought all that was very interesting. And you talk a little bit in your author's note, which I also wanted to say, I loved your author's note. I love when authors take the time to kind of talk a little bit more about the history and what you included and what you didn't. And your lengthy note was fascinating. And I've actually read it several times and just enjoy kind of seeing what you did and whose stories you took where and who you included and why and just, you know, what they really did. It's all very, very interesting. I love it. And I believe that an author's note is the beginning of the conversation. You've, you've just spent a, a great deal of time in this narrative and you, you see, you've met these people. You know, what happened? What are their, what are, what are the, what aspects of their lives that I can tell you beyond this book? What, you know, what was happening during the timeframes and what are some of the results? Because sometimes you're not able to tell the whole story in the number of pages that you get for a book. So I, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to tell you the different things that I thought about, as well as I, I'm a documenter. So, you know, piecing together Dorothy's history was it was a very big challenge because oftentimes you won't find a diary that's specifically written by her. But you may find diary entries of other people talking about her. You'll find incidentals notes about other people who've met with her and whatnot. So you're always doing this this weaving in order to get the story. And so I want people to feel that and to understand how very special this woman was and the, and the times that she was living. I want to take a quick break and introduce another podcast to you that deals with books. The Fantasy Inn focuses on fantasy, speculative fiction, and other books in that genre. Have a listen. The Fantasy Inn podcast is a Stabby award-winning bi-weekly show that covers all things fantasy and discusses the broader speculative fiction industry. Listen to six book critics across five countries, discuss fantasy, and recommend great reads. Or enjoy an in-depth interview as I, Travis Tippins, talk with some of the hottest authors in the genre. You can find The Fantasy Inn wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out thefantasyinn.com to join our Discord server and hang out with other book lovers in real time. We've gone behind the scenes with popular bloggers and podcasters, as well as featured industry greats like Christopher Paolini, Victoria Aveyard, and V.E. Schwab. Everyone's welcome at The Fantasy Inn, and we hope that you join us as we dig into what makes this genre special. We're living in a golden age of fantasy and science fiction. Let's explore it together. Well, tell me a little bit more about your research. It's exhaustive. <laughs> <laughs> and you're talking about, you know, just the beginning of the conversation with the author's note and the length of the book. And I thought with everything you had in there, you probably could have written four books. <laughs> yeah, it, there, there's, it's, it's wonderful to be that immersive. And I am one, I'm a deep dive. I will, I will not shy away from it. I love a deep dive. So if we've got to wrestle around in wills, I mean, her, her, uh, Dorothy Kerwin Thomas's will is actually archived in the UK. That just kind of shows the level 
that she's ascertained because not everybody's will is is in the UK. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, y- you got to find for women of color, we are not properly documented in, in the ways that some of the leading men of the ages of George Washington. I have, I have, I have one of George Washington's diaries, particularly when he was in Barbados. I have that level of uh, firsthand, secondhand uh, accountings. For Dorothy, I have to use documents that she had written at her will. Uh, so her, her leases, her, her will, um, and then looking at the birth records, because for women, our reproductive history is our history. It will trace when you get these babies baptized or the actual birth record itself. Those are records that tell you where, potentially will tell you who the father is, and it tells you where your people have migrated. Dorothy was very uh, transitory. She moved, I mean, it's that's a lot of mileage to go from Maseret to Demerara and all the different spaces in between. And then once again, to going to the UK, she also spent time in uh, Scotland and she's building schools or, or financing schools in England. She traveled a lot. And so by tracing the money, tracing the births of the children, you get a picture of exactly where this woman was and the levels of the playing field that she influenced. She did travel a lot. And especially for that time period, it seemed like. And then you also talk about, you know, she had 10 children. And I thought, oh my gosh, that would just be exhausting uh, in and of itself, 10 children. But that she was really great about making sure all of that was recorded, like where the child was born, who the father was. So I'm sure that gave you some information too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that was that was some of the keys because that told me where Dorothy was and the years that she was here. So you were able to figure out well, if she's now in Dominica, you know, in Russo Dominica, you're able to figure out, well, that means she must have left Demerara at this particular point in time. Did she go any other place? You know, you're able to, you know, do a lot of mathematical analysis of, because you have these these records. But then you also have to understand that because you don't know when they're recorded, it could be within a year plus or minus of those actual record. So it's, it's, there's, you get some clarity, but then sometimes you get more mysteries by trying to find the different pieces of documentation. But yes, uh, leases, uh, bill of sales, places where they were recording. One of my favorite things was ships manifest. Whenever she left the colony, they would say she's quitting the colony, which doesn't mean, you know, quitting, quitting, but it means she's leaving the colony, but they would have a list of her, her passengers who she was taking. So she would, you would see the list of the grandkids and the children that she was taking with her. Um, she has one visit to Scotland. I believe she took 18 people with her. It was funny that my the if one of the copywriters was like, did you meet eight? And I was like, nope. Yeah, exactly. You're like, nope, 18. <laughs> her own little entourage. Exactly. I had never heard the term manumission. I assume that's how you pronounce it. Yes, manumission. And so I had to look it up. I mean, you describe what it is, but I had to kind of look it up so I could understand better. And I didn't really realize how formal the process of seeking freedom was. I mean, is that was that the case in the U.S. too, where you went before a court and a set amount of money was paid? Or was that something that was more set in the colonies? I think that was more set in the colonies. I've, to be honest, I am, I've not read that detailed of a process here in the United States. It's probably very well documented, but I haven't really done that, that body of research. And I haven't heard stories to that level. 
So it was, it was a little bit shocking to me when I was reading this specific process. And once again, the process was actually different in each one of the islands. But manumission is, or the ransom, as they called it in, in some of the people called it in Demerara, was just fascinating to me of the, you have to have the monies, you have to pay these fees, and then you have the agreed upon amounts for your actual, to pay out the bondage. And so there are points I was reading, um, at one point in Maserat, they wanted to raise the, the local government wanted to raise the price of manumissions. And the slaveholders were saying, no, no, you can't, because how else will we reward the women's love and faithfulness? I was like, oh, when I saw that in your notes, I was like, oh, that's just so awful. It is. I was amazed that the government was setting the fee. Like all of that was completely fascinating to me because I wasn't familiar with it. And like you said, I hadn't read about it in the U.S. at all. And then also that you had to go before, I'm assuming it was a judge or some kind of government official to pay your money and receive your papers to be free. And I I really thought a lot about that. And I guess the, the one upside is that you would have very good proof that you were free, that you, you had the papers. So, you know, you could say, look, I, I have bought my freedom. But other than that, it just seemed like such a different system. In the West Indies in particular, you're living in a system where you could be re-enslaved. So having that formal proof, and I don't know if you had to be in front of a judge, but it definitely had to be done with solicitors. So legal legal documents, signing off of both parties agreeing that certain amounts of monies have been paid, as well as the manumissions, it's all legally recorded. And these papers you had to have on you. Right. Uh, that was the, especially in Granada, when I got to that section where they were literally putting people in jail if they didn't have their papers, I was, I kept thinking to the migratory circumstances here at south of the border in Arizona at, at different aspects, because it's like history repeating itself, but it's, it's, it's frightening. And so it, to me, it, it helped me understand Dorothy's mindset so intensely of why she always, always needed to make sure her children's births, their free births are recorded. Make sure that the, her papers are always on her person in her in her reticule, because of that fear of somebody calling in the question, somebody not knowing your name and assuming that you could be enslaved. Because there were kidnappers; those types of people could literally take you. And you know, it's very hard for women of color during that time frame to get their day in justice, their literal day in court. It takes a lot, right? Just to be able to prove up that you were free. So then I guess I thought, well, at least that system, even though it's horrible that you're having to pay this money and all of that, at least if you had your papers, you were able to say, listen, I am free. I mean, and her father, he just made me so mad, this kind of hanging it over her head forever. Yes, yes, yes. You know, I will help set you free or I will pay to set you free. And then not ever doing it. This was common, right? This, this stringing along of people. Their relationship was very, was very different than what I would normally expected. Normally, you know, there are, you know, as, as, as we've read these different versions of enslavement, you see this, the, the harshness, you see the brutality, sometimes you see sexual violence, et cetera. I believe that they had a loving relationship. He was, he just wasn't a man you could count on because of the things she knew. Her modeling of business 
she was good at it. He wasn't. He was trying to build a mercantile empire, importing goods from Ireland and Scotland and then selling it throughout the islands, as well as production on his plantation. He just never could get it together. Right. In, right. in a way that would manifest. If he'd ever hit it big, I want, I always wondered, would he have actually done what he kept claiming to do, that he was going to free her? So I don't know. But he was he he's disappointing. She does it. She has to do it. She's the one who has to do it. She's the one who has to free her her mother, whom the man seems to love in his own way. So she's the one that makes things right. And it's a conflicted state. But I think it models a lot of the things that I that I've been reading, especially, you know, with you have the men in, in Maseret crying about their love and faithfulness. And it's it's heartbreaking. But I also think that is why Dorothy makes the choices in some of the men in her life. What um, things that she accepted, things she didn't accept is all rooted back to this relationship with her father of not being, of being given promises. And in the end, you are the one who have to make them true and right. Right. Never fulfilling the promises that he's supposed to and not protecting her against his son, her half-brother. I mean, I just thought, oh my gosh, I, I don't know, it was heartbreaking, frustrating. It just made me so angry. Yes. And it's it's emblematic of, of, I know. The, of the time. So <laughs> it's like, it, it's whenever you write these types of books, you have to, you know, there's a line of what do you want to include? Because if you leave some of these things out, people think you're whitewashing the in- enslavement, trying to make it a picture. And what I was trying to do is make sure it's evenly balanced. Yes, there is a lot of horror. It's enslavement. This is not a picnic. But at the same time, you see her personal joy, how she finds her personal joy in, in even these bad situations, and how she's always striving to for her goals. I think the goals kept her sane and kept her moving forward. Absolutely. And she was quite successful. She survived. And I just, I wish I'd known this, her story sooner. This is one of those, why is it hidden? You know, this makes me think, why is this story hidden? Why did, you know, why does it have to be happenstance that I see a, a cartoon in six, search, six years of searching in, in order to put this woman's life together? And literally she was reduced to, I think, a paragraph in one book and a chapter in another book when her life is just so large and it needs to be told. I can't tell you how often I hear that, though. I mean, authors saying that exact story, whoever the woman is, that, you know, so many of these women's stories have been just covered up. And I think part of it is who tells history. So men have frequently in the past been telling history. And so a lot of these women's stories get completely covered up. But thankfully, at least they're mentioned in a paragraph in a book or, you know, somebody stumbles upon it in another book they're researching. And then some of these stories are starting to come to light. Exactly. I think once these stories are out, women, people like myself who love history, seeing ourselves in different ways, in different forms, and not always in the victim role, because women are often classed as victims. We're waiting around for someone to save us. And to see women who were in dire circumstances, but yet still able to find a way to survive and then eventually thrive, I think it's, it's exciting. It expands the landscape of possibilities for everybody who reads. I agree. And I love your dedication, which reads to every little black girl who was told no, that you can never be more. Breathe. Don't believe the lies. Keep dreaming. Tell your story. Well, what about title and cover? 
How did they come about? Title, uh, that's pretty much always been the title, Island Queen. My agent, Sarah, is great at naming things. And so I'm not sure if it was her, me, or a uh, a fellow author, Denny S. Bryce of Wild Women in the Blues, uh, whether we all got together or it was, but I think this one was pretty much always Island Queen. The cover, however, my editor at William Morrow, Rachel Kahn, is amazing. I'm describing Dorothy, I think it was a just kismet of two minds coming together, deciding that the cover needs to show this this image of a woman who has been through something, but is strong and proud and resolved and gorgeous. Because I think Dorothy was always gorgeous. She never had a moment <laughs> when she made her money not being gorgeous. She must have been just from her story and her life and the way she attracted men. She had to be just stunning. Yes, just a, a man fly. Um, because it, even when she had nothing, she did, there was this thing that just drew her, drew everyone to her light. So uh, William Morrow um, has works with a number of independent artists, and Tanya Engel brought it to life. And everything that from the clothes to the hat, everything is period correct, and it had to have a hat. You know, Cindy, it had mm, to have. For sure. And I love that hat and the feathers and even the background blue. I mean, I know when I, I participated in the cover reveal and when we were all posting the photos, everybody was like, that cover. It's amazing. I don't know if you've had, if you've had a chance to have the hard copy in your hand. Gosh, it's so pretty in the map at the front. Oh my gosh. It's, it's gorgeous. I, I, and I, I even took the cover off. Even the book itself is gorgeous. Like, you know, just <laughs> The way that it's done, I've, I, I was, I teared up. It was, it's just beautiful to see. It's beautiful to see. Well, that's wonderful and exciting. Do you want to quickly talk about what you're working on now? Oh no, no, I am working on Sister Mother Warrior, and this is looking at the two women that helped shape the Haitian Revolution. So you will meet Toya and Mary Claire, and many of the women that are involved in actual fighting, in planning, and in saving the soul of uh, this burgeoning nation. I hate to even ask this question because I should know it, but when was the Haitian Revolution? Haitian Revolution is uh, between 1793 to 1805. So you're staying in the time period that you wrote with the Island Queen. Absolutely. I am a dedicated Georgian (laughs) Regency writer. (laughs) That's right. And I saw that in in several things I read about you. So you really enjoy that time period. Well, that's kind of fun because you've got all this research you've already done for Island Queen. And even though it's a different island, I'm sure some things probably factor into this one too. It definitely helps you think about things. But once again, this was, this island is, uh, Santa Domingo is French controlled or primarily French controlled. And it has a different form of enslavement than what I had encountered uh, in other places that were primarily British and Dutch. So you'll learn about Code Noir and and other fascinating things that really explain the strife and struggle that Santo Domingo, present-day Haiti, has undergone. Okay, good. Well, that sounds fabulous. What about what you've read recently that you really liked? What I have read recently that I really like is... How the One-Armed Sister Sweeps Her House by Sherry Jones. Very good Caribbean read. Kristen Higgins' Pack Up the Moon 
She will wrench your heart every single time. She does not spare your heart on this one. And things that I'm looking forward to is um, Farrah Sean's got the Boyfriend Playbook coming out. She is so much fun. She is. She's delightful. I will always be so indebted to her because when I, I launched this podcast actually about a year ago, early on, I knew a few authors, so I reached out to them. And then I just kind of started looking around and books that I was seeing on Instagram. And I reached out to people and she was one of my very early episodes. She didn't know me or anything. And she agreed to do an interview and we had a ball. Excellent. Yeah. So th- that's that's my reading fun. Vanessa, I really appreciate your taking the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I very much enjoyed speaking about Island Queen. Cindy, thank you for having me. I love discussing Island Queen. I am so glad that it's now here for everybody to read about Dorothy Kerwin Thomas and get excited about the different facets of her life. I agree. It's been fun to see it on every list out there. So I'm sure everybody is going to be so excited to get their hands on it. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.